Well, thank you for that warm welcome. Thank you, Pastor Calvin, for the privilege of being here. It's been a joy uh, to get to know you and Charlotte a bit over this weekend. Uh, I've had the privilege, both in the four years I've been serving as IMB president, and about eight years prior to that, uh, of now, uh, for the past 12 years, uh, preaching almost every Sunday in a different Baptist church somewhere across the United States. Uh, so having done that for 12 years, I've been in lots of churches and lots of different size churches. Uh, but I must say, Pastor, uh, I have been greatly encouraged as much uh, as in visiting any of those churches uh, by the spirit that I've sensed in this congregation, uh, by uh, the focus on Great Commission work, uh, to see the intentionality both in local ministry, in ministry uh, throughout the U.S., and particularly in so many partnerships through the International Mission Board and our other partners around the world. It has been uh, just a tremendous blessing to me. And I'm thankful for the way the Lord is using you and your leadership and the elders and team here uh, at Bull Street Baptist Church. And I celebrate what, what God is doing. Uh, and church family, I trust uh, that, that you're aware of this, but knowing that uh, your pastor and his wife, uh, they've been serving here for 15 years and seeing how God has used and is using them. Uh, as an outsider, just looking in, uh, it looks to me as though you are richly blessed uh, to have the Fowler serving with you here. And so I celebrate that with you and also the privilege that they have of serving uh, here in this church family. I know as he has communicated to me, uh, how blessed he feels and to see what God has done over these years uh, is a tremendous blessing to me. Glad to have a couple of our team members from the International Mission Board here with me today. Uh, Jonathan is here uh, seated at the front. Sarah uh, is about halfway back. I think she had uh, some time this morning and uh, uh, downstairs as uh, you were uh, learning more about the partnerships and all that God is doing uh, through your church family. I am uh, uh, grateful to be able to, on behalf of uh, not only myself and Jonathan and Sarah, but on behalf of 3,550 overseas missionaries who serve through the IMB, and there are 2,850 kids uh, who are overseas with them, I'm grateful to be able to say thank you today. Uh, thank you for your prayers for them. Uh, thank you for your generous support, and we're so thankful for the incredible generosity of last year's Global Missions offering here at Bull Street, and excited with you to see how God would use your generosity uh, this year, and want to give you assurance that indeed God is mightily at work among the nations. He's doing wonderful things through our partnership uh, together. We saw more than 500,000 people have the privilege of hearing the gospel just this past year. Even in the midst of all of the challenges with the pandemic, uh, your IMB missionaries and their Baptist partners on the ground all over the world were very active. And many of the COVID relief projects that we were doing and many of the refugee relief projects and areas of uh, around places like Ukraine and Afghanistan. We just had such a great opportunity to share the gospel with people who were desperate to have some sense of hope at such an enormous point of pain and brokenness in their lives. Now, there were 176,000 of those who heard who professed faith in Christ 
And as we celebrated uh, the baptism this morning, how encouraging that was to see. There were 107,000 new believers overseas who profess faith in the same manner. Uh, as uh, Pastor Calvin said, preaching the gospel through their baptism. Uh, and what a blessing uh, that has been. And that is your work. Uh, we are your extension uh, to the nations. Uh, for 131 years now, since the very beginning of Bull Street Baptist Church in 1891, I think that was the date I heard last night, for 131 years now, uh, not uh, a day has gone by that this church has been without a witness among the nations because your IMB missionaries have consistently stayed and served regardless of what was going on here at home or around the world. They've continued their work and so you have continued in your Great Commission faithfulness across those 131 years without even a day of interruption. I trust that that is an encouragement to you as much as it is to me. This morning, I want to turn your attention to a passage of scripture that I think will uh, reiterate the importance of the work that we are doing together as uh, we consider this question today. What is the world's greatest problem? What is the world's greatest problem? Uh, it doesn't take but five minutes in front of a television and the daily news broadcasts or scrolling through the news reports on a device, five minutes of seeing all of the problems in our world would lead you almost to clinical depression. I mean, there are so many problems in our world. What is the greatest problem? Look with me, Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 9. Let me invite you to stand as we Hear God's Word read this morning from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. As you're standing and finding that passage, a bit of the context here, one of the many things that Paul is doing in the book of Romans is addressing uh, the situation, the plight, the reality of the Jews, the Israelites. They were the covenant people of God. Uh, we are so familiar with those Old Testament promises that God made to the Jews. In fact, we read some of them earlier today uh, in the passive scripture that was highlighted for us in worship. But the question that Paul is addressing is in light of the fact that Jesus the Messiah has come and died for the sins of the people, and yet many of the Jews, the Israelites, God's covenant people have rejected Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah. What then, then does this mean for the Jews? Uh, and Paul is addressing that question here in Romans 3. We're picking up in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we, and Paul, when he says we, he is referencing himself and his people, the Jews, the Israelites. Do we have any advantage? Not at all, Paul says. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, everyone else, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. And if all of those words aren't condemning enough, here, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Thank you, and you may be seated. So what is the world's greatest problem? News of the war in Ukraine has sort of resurfaced. It never completely left the news feed, but it certainly was diminished uh, in its uh, attention uh, over the few months that have gone by, most recently. Uh, The war obviously being huge news back when it began in March, Uh, but resurfacing as Ukraine is making some gains and pushing Russians out of uh, thousands of kilometers of land they had occupied. Uh, This struggle has been horrific in its consequence for the people of Ukraine. More than six million have fled the country as refugees from this war, more than six million more displaced internally, leaving their cities, communities, towns, going to other places in the country where the bombs weren't falling and where the soldiers weren't invading. We're told recently in an article by Associated Press that as many as two million Ukrainians have been forcibly moved into Russia, a million of those being children. Southern Baptists have responded to this crisis, this humanitarian crisis. More than $12 million has been given just for the relief efforts that are taking place through the International Mission Board and Send Relief, our compassion ministry arm, and we're grateful for that. But, but, but the consequences of this war are incredible, and not just for Ukraine. It's true all across Europe. Uh, the consequences are being felt with talk of nuclear escalation. I mean, this could be unspeakable global issue of such horror. But is that the world's greatest problem? In the month of September, we observed World Hunger Sunday in Southern Baptist Life, the day we set aside to pray for the hungry, to, to express generosity, to be aware of, of the needs of others around the world. You may or may not be aware of the fact that global hunger is a very real problem As many as two billion people today will struggle to have a single meal to eat. 345 million, we are told, are on the verge of starving to death. That number, by the way, has increased 25% since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Ukraine's one of those breadbasket countries, not just for Europe, but particularly for Sub-Saharan Africa. You think about two billion people Uh, struggling to find a meal, 345 million. I mean, that's overwhelming, isn't it? Just the numbers. But is that the world's greatest problem? If not, what is? You know, there are 50 million modern slaves, uh, forced laborers around the world, more than any point in human history, people being held captive by those who would work them even to death. What an incredible, so many problems in our world. And yet I submit to you today that 
None of those things, and add to them human trafficking, add to them uh, the global climate changes. None of those problems even began to rival the world's greatest problem, a problem that can be communicated in a single word. And that word is lostness, spiritual lostness. Now, why would I say in light of all these horrific problems that, that spiritual lostness, that being lost is the greatest problem in our world? I say that for two reasons. One, because this is the only problem that's eternal. Do you know that every problem that you face in life, for the most part, ends the moment you die? <laughs> Next Saturday, if I die tomorrow, I don't care what Georgia does going into the playoffs. Uh, I don't care how that election runoff turns out. Uh, if I die tomorrow, uh, I'm free from the, the lower back pains. <laughs> when one is dead, the depression that haunted you throughout your life is over. No more struggle with addiction. No more conflict in your family or in your marriage. I mean, it's over. Every problem is solved. <laughs> Except one. In fact, the real magnitude of this problem only sets in the moment you die. Because to die lost, spiritually lost, separated from God because of our sin, is to spend eternity separate from God because of sin. Hell is reflected in scripture as such a horrible place for a reason. God is not there. He's the source of everything that is good in life, is he not? The Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights and whom is no turning. Uh, we know God is love. And so in hell, separated from the source of love, there's only hatred. We know uh, God is, is, his spirit is our source of comfort. Uh, and so to be separated from the one who's the source of comfort is to know only the agony of hell. The Bible says Christ is your joy. And to be separated from joy and the source of joy is to know only the sorrow and the grieving of hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. And to be separated from Jesus who is the source of life and life eternal is to know only the death of hell. Imagine facing eternity. I wouldn't want to, I've lived days lost. I wouldn't want to live another day lost, another day separated from God because of my sin, another day without a personal relationship with Jesus. But to face eternity, is there a greater problem? It's an eternal problem. It's also the world's greatest problem because it's a universal problem. This applies to everyone. And Paul, in fact, is going to make that case so strongly in the verses that we've read. See, Paul is dealing with the situation of the Jews, the Israelites. What Paul will affirm in the book of Romans is that all the promises God made to Israel will be kept. And yet, that does not exclude any person from responsibility for their sin, whether you're talking about a Jew or a Gentile, everyone else who's not a Jew. We are all personally responsible for our sin. Your Jewishness, if you're a Jew, Paul says, that's not going to save you. 
regardless of the promises that God has made to the Jewish people as a whole and those promises being kept because God keeps all his promises. And so Paul makes that clear in verse 9. We ask the question, what shall we conclude? Do, any, uh, do, do we have any advantage? Does the Jew, the Israelite, have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And now Paul will go on from here to, to hammer home this reality that sin is a universal problem, that spiritual lostness is a universal no, no one escapes this condition. In fact, no less than eight times, Paul will state this unequivocally, beginning in verse 10. Track with me here, picking up in verse 10. There is no one righteous, Paul says, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one and if we were to hear those words and think, well, but maybe one, <laughs> yeah, might be true for everybody else, but not for me. Paul is going to use an illustration here to prove his point. He, he, he's going to use the same illustration that James uses in James chapter 3. Paul and James both say, in essence, if you're wondering if this applies to you, consider for a moment your speech. Consider your tongue. In our day, Paul could have said something like, record yourself talking just for an afternoon. <laughs> Play it back. See if there's sin. Uh, read an article a few months back and the the Atlantic. I, I read that article simply because of the title of the article. The title of the article caught my attention. The article was entitled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> I mean, with a title like that, I thought, I want to see what he has to say. Well, he, the author, Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, uh, did something interesting as he was addressing the issue of social media and how social media has so affected our culture and our way of life in America. And, and, and he uses an Old Testament story uh, to make his point. He uses the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Where the people came together, they wanted to make a name for themselves, and so they determined that they would work together and they would build a tower that would reach to the heavens, that would reach to God. But that effort that brought them together ultimately drove them apart as God even confused their language and they could not communicate with one another. Well, the, the author uses that story and that image uh, to make his point about social media. Like the Tower of Babel was an effort to bring people together. Social media was supposed to bring us together we call them Facebook friends, right? <laughs> and yet Facebook can be a very unfriendly place. Uh, and what was supposed to bring us together has torn us apart. But what the author does not go on to say, yet I think needs to be said, is that social media is not the problem. 
It's not the keyboard. It's not the screen. It's not the platform, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Here is the problem. The problem is the heart. The depraved heart. Because you see, the words simply reveal the heart. Jesus said as much to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. You might remember as he uh, uh, does a little name calling there. To the Pharisees in Matthew 12, Jesus said, you brood of vipers, how are you How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth simply reveals the heart. So Jesus says uh, to the Pharisees, you're a brood of vipers, you're a den of snakes. It's interesting, Paul, back in Romans 3, uses that same imagery in verse 13, where he says uh, about this problem of human speech and it revealing the fact that we're all sinners, the poison of vipers is on their lips. The poison of snakes is on their lips. Anyone know a good snake story? I've got lots of snake stories, (laughs) but my best one comes from my teenage years. It was between my seventh and eighth grade years over summer break. I had the opportunity to attend conservation camp. I was very excited about the prospect of attending conservation camp. As soon as I heard about it and heard what you get to do uh, at conservation camp, spend a week or two uh, in camp learning about conservation and critters. I love the outdoors, but, but there were some things that like really got my attention. I was told in conservation camp uh, that one night you have rattlesnake for supper and I never had rattlesnake to eat. So I thought that would be cool. You know, remember eighth grade boy. Uh, but I was also told at conservation camp, you get to dissect a beaver. And uh, yet I did not know that the beaver would be frozen and have to be thawed out in the bathtub in my cabin. But that's the way it turned out, yet it was still fun dissecting the beaver. But there were two things that made conservation camp like legendary and, 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 and that sealed the deal for me. I was told at conservation camp, you get to be a part of a snake roundup and you get to join the snake bite club. And so I got on a school bus from my little town in the mountains on the Tennessee-Kentucky line, rode 10 hours in a school bus to the far edge of western Tennessee where the 4-H and University of Tennessee and Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency was hosting conservation camp. It was all it promised to be. I mean, we had, we had a great time. Uh, we, we, we had rattlesnake, we dissected the beaver, and then there came the night that we all loaded back on the school buses And we were driven to a swampy area outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and we were set out of the school buses and assigned the job of catching snakes all night. Now, can you even imagine that today? Uh, Pile on middle school kids onto the bus, drive them to a swamp, push them out of the bus and tell them to catch snakes. I mean, you, you wouldn't as much as get the bus doors closed, someone would file a lawsuit. <laughs> but this was 1983, and in 1983, you could literally load a school bus full of kids, dump them in a swamp and tell them to catch snakes. <laughs> and that's what we did. Well, the next day was when like 
conservation camp hit the apex, the next day they took the non-venomous, the non-poisonous snakes that we had caught, and they put them in a pillowcase, and one of the camp counselors carried the pillowcase full of, of snakes all throughout the camp, and anyone who wanted to join the snake bite club had the opportunity to do so. It was a very simple process. All you usually had to do was just put your hand in the pillowcase, so you were immediately inducted into the club. But I was at the last cabin on the row of cabins, and so by the time they made it down to my cabin with the pillowcase full of snakes, apparently the snakes were tired. And so I put my hand in the pillowcase and nothing happened. And then I looked at the counselor, I said, what do I do now? Nothing's happening. He said, well, pull one out. And so I dug around the pillowcase and found one and pulled it out. That snake hood that was hanging there in, in, in my hand, about as disinterested in me as my teenage daughter. I mean, not even looking my way. So I'm like, well, what do I do now? The counselor said, well, slap him. And so I did. And he slapped me back with a toothy slap right on the back of my hand. And that's how I joined the snake bite club. Let me offer a disclaimer here. This was not church camp. <laughs> I'm a Baptist from the mountains. I'm not that kind of Baptist. We had those churches where I grew up. I was not a member of one. This was conservation camp. But let me offer another disclaimer. I had already joined the snake bite club before that day. In fact, I was born a member. I was born a member. The Bible's full of snake stories. The earliest comes to us in the book of Genesis. You remember the historical record of the serpent slithering into the garden, tempting the woman and the man, Eve and Adam, them falling prey to his temptation and feeling the sting of his bite. Doing what God had clearly told them not to do, they had rebelled against God. They sinned, sin entered the world. It marks the fall of man. But it's interesting in God's judgment upon Adam and Eve and upon the serpent that he notes what has happened here in the garden does not just have consequence for you, but also for your offspring. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put, verse 15, enmity between you and the woman, and listen to this, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At the moment of their sin, Adam and Eve had a problem. Separated from God because of that sin, under the judgment of God, we call that 
lost. But you see, it wasn't just their problem. It was also the problem of their offspring. And so Cain, born a son of the fall, born, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sin. But we also know that Cain willingly put his hand in the pillowcase himself, did he not? When out of jealousy, he killed his own brother. And so lostness was the greatest problem in Cain's day. It's the greatest problem of the world in Noah's day and God judged the earth through the flood. Lostness was the greatest problem of the world in Isaiah's day and Ezekiel's day and Jeremiah's day and God spoke through those prophets to warn the people of his coming judgment upon their sin because of their rebellion. But even then through the prophets, God began to, to bring a word of hope and to speak about a solution to this problem as he pointed the people to a Messiah who would come and bear the sins of the people. Lostness has always been the problem. And it's a greater problem today than it's ever been. Why would I say that lostness is a greater problem today than it's ever been? Each year, our research team at the International Mission Board provides me with a statistic built on three sets of data. The first set of data is world population and the population growth around the world. The second set of data is the global death rate as it is reported country by country. The third set of data is religious affiliation of the peoples of different countries around the world. Based upon those three sets of data, the statistic our research team gives me is the estimated number of people around the world who die every day having given no indication that they're Christian, that they're a follower of Jesus, that they've been born again, that they've been saved. That number today is higher than it's ever been in the history of the world. Today, 157,690 people will die around the world having given no indication that they are followers of Jesus who have been saved, adopted in the Father's family, and are headed towards heaven. 157,690 every single day. There's no greater problem in the world than that. And that's why what we do together to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear is so important because you see, God has solved this problem. And, 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 and we know the solution. What is the solution? Interestingly enough, Jesus, even before he died on the cross, as he was trying to explain what he had come to do and how through him, God was solving the world's greatest problem, told a snake story. You might remember it. Jesus is speaking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus is explaining in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus that you must be born again. And Nicodemus is just befuddled by that. I mean, how, how, how does that work? How, how can a man be, be, go back into his mother's womb and be, be born again? And to try to under, help Nicodemus understand what he, Jesus, was going to do for Nicodemus and for all who will believe in him, Jesus tells Nicodemus a snake story. It's a story, another story from the Old Testament. 
It's a story of when the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness on their way from their slavery in Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. And, and yet again, they had rebelled against God. They had sinned against him. And in judgment, God sent deadly vipers, poisonous snakes into the camps of the Israelites. They began to bite the people. The people were dying. Seeing the consequence of their sin, the people began to cry out to God, forgive us, uh, we, we, we are sorry, save us. Moses, their leader, cried out on their behalf, and God provided the solution. Do you remember what the solution was? God said, Moses, fashion a serpent out of bronze. Put it on a pole, and anyone who is bitten by one of these vipers, if they'll look to that bronze serpent, they will live. They will not die. Jesus, referencing that story to Nicodemus, says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that any who would believe in him will have eternal life. And he was lifted up on the cross where Jesus died for your sin and for mine. And any who will look to him in faith, trusting that what he did there was for you, believing that not only did he die, but he was raised, he has, he has achieved victory over death, hell, and the grave. To have that kind of faith to be willing to, to, to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus as our Savior. We call that repentance. To acknowledge Him as Lord because He is. The Bible says when you've done that, when you've placed your faith in Jesus, when you've repented of your sin, you've confessed Him as Lord, your greatest problem at that moment is solved. You're forgiven. You're adopted into the Father's family. And heaven in his kingdom is your eternal home. Thank God for that solution. He solved our greatest problem. And yet there is a world full of people who know nothing about it. And that's why we're here. That's why global missions matters at Bull Street Baptist. That's why the church must be about the business of getting the gospel to those who have yet to hear because so much is at stake. Thank God there's a solution to the world's greatest problem. We know what it is. We've been called to share it. Several years ago, there, a couple of men showed up in a parking lot of a Baptist church on a weekday evening. It was a church much like this in that it was Baptist church with a parking lot. Unlike this in the fact that that church building and the parking lot could almost fit in this sanctuary. Just a small little church in a small town in the mountains on the Tennessee-Kentucky line. They showed up on a weekday evening, not even Wednesday night, mind you, just a, another day of the week, but they showed up at the church on a weekday evening because it was church visitation night. 
and they set out to do what they'd come to do. They began to walk through the neighborhoods in the little town, knocking on doors, inviting people to church. At some point that evening, they climbed a steep hill and they made their way up to the next to last house on the road. It was a little rental property at the address of 210 Province Street. There they stepped up on the porch and they knocked on the door. This young man came to the door in his mid-twenties. I don't know if they knew about his situation in life. It was a small town. You know how small towns go. They may have known all about his situation in life. But had they known about his situation, they would have known he was about two years past a divorce. And he was raising his three kids on his own. All boys. I don't know if they knew anything like that about him, but what they could not have possibly known that the the four-year-old somewhere in the house that night would someday be the president of the International Mission Board. They may not have known much, they could not have known that, but they knew enough. They knew enough to know that people not in church needed to be in church and that broken families need the Lord. And the greatest need in any person's life is a personal relationship with Jesus that solves their greatest problem. And so when dad opened the door, they introduced themselves and they invited him to church. Dad managed somehow the next Sunday to get three rowdy boys ready on his own and take us to church. He took us back the Sunday after that and the Sunday after that it soon became the pattern of our family. And a few years later, there was another knock at our door. We're still living in that little rental house. Dad opened the door and our pastor was standing there, Brother Allen. He was expected, my older brother, you see, had been asking questions about the gospel. What would it mean for him to follow Jesus with his life? And Dad had asked our pastor, would you mind to come by one night if you have time and talk to my boy? And so Brother Allen came in, he sat in the green chair in the corner of our living room. Dad brought a chair out of the kitchen and put it in front of him and my older brother sat there. My younger brother and I, we sat in the floor and we listened in as Pastor Allen shared the gospel with our older brother. Pastor Allen got three for one that night as we put our trust in Jesus. We're baptized a few weeks later together in the baptistry of the Little First Baptist Church of Jellicoe, Tennessee. I can't tell you how grateful I am for a couple of men in the church who cared about their neighbors enough to address their greatest problem. I can't tell you how grateful I am for a pastor like your pastor and the leaders here at Bull Street who uh, I'm sure Brother Allen was busy, had a lot going on, but he was willing to come and sit in our living room and share the gospel with us. I can't tell you how grateful for I am for a little church there in the mountains that knew why it was there. And one of the reasons I'm so encouraged today is that it's obvious to me that I'm in a church like that this morning. You wouldn't have to go far out of the parking lot of this church to find a broken family, to find a lost man or woman, boy or girl, whose greatest need is a relationship with Jesus Christ that will solve their greatest problem. 
Get on a plane with one of those mission teams your pastor's been talking about getting started back up here at Bull Street Baptist Church. Come and walk alongside of our missionaries overseas. We'll show you billions of people like that. Church, that's why you're here. Don't forget why you're here. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you today for not leaving us unaware of what is clearly the greatest problem in the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for solving that problem. I pray that for those of us who know that solution and who have assurance of hope in you, Lord, that you would turn our eyes with compassion and love for the lost around us who are yet as we once were and that we would out of compassion and love and obedience be willing to share with those around us. And Lord, if you would be calling us to go, not just to those who are around us right now, but to those around the world who no one has yet gone to reach, might you find today an excitement, a readiness, a willingness to say, here am I, send me. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.